It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. What's up, guys? Ryan Sprague here, and I'm just dropping in to remind you about our Patreon campaign. Somewhere in the Skies is always free to consume, but it's not free to create. So if you want to help the show on a monthly basis... We have tons of rewards for you in return, including shoutouts on the show and website, bonus content and episodes, and free merch. Want to be my guest or pick a topic for the show? You can do that too. So if you'd like to learn more and to help support the show, visit patreon.com slash skies. Thank you, and keep looking up. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. sleepy corner of southwestern Puerto Rico, flanked by the Sierra Bermeja mountain range, lies the village of Lajas. Just beyond it, the PR-303 highway. Approaching the vicinity of the village, a sign proudly announces, Ruta Extraterrestre. The sign is deadly serious. In 2005, the mayor of Lajas, Marcos Turin Irizarry Pagan, symbolically declared PR-303 the extraterrestrial route. This announcement, as far as a number of longtime residents of Lajas were concerned, was a long time coming. Anomalous aerial phenomena and encounters with strange creatures have been occurring along this stretch of highway and around the mysterious Bermeja mountain range since the mid-1980s. That's when, according to local knowledge, earthquakes, the rumble of explosions, and what sounded like drills began shaking the countryside. These events seem to coincide with the installation of the Lajas Aerostat radar balloon near the mountain range. The U.S. military's official word on this balloon's purpose is that it detects drug smugglers, but no information about the balloon's activities or data has been released to the public, prompting doubt and questions from Lajas residents. Locals have reported red lights traveling above Lajas's hills. But the stories don't begin and end with the village of Lajas or distant red lights or even rumbling sounds or explosions. Puerto Rico has a prolific relationship and history with UFOs and the unexplained. And those born there also have a special relationship with the many mysteries of the island. Yami Gonzalez is an educator, researcher, and the host of the Cryptid Chat podcast, where she explores various topics from cryptids to the supernatural and sometimes UFOs. 
she is also proud to call Puerto Rico her birthplace. I am born and bred in Puerto Rico. My entire family, both my mom's side and my dad's side of the family, are from Puerto Rico. I was born in the Rio Piedras area, so that's around San Juan, the capital of the island. We lived there for about a year, year and a half. I lived with my parents, surrounded by two both very large Hispanic families that showered over their first grandchild. But I have all the stories that my parents share from that specific time period before we moved into the States. But I did come back to visit um, when I was younger and, and could actually really experience it there. So we I visited some of like the capital areas and some of the places that like my mother grew up in. So it was it's an absolutely beautiful island. And I hope that once pandemic calms down a little, we've been meaning to go right back. And I would like to explore even more of what the island has to offer. Because even though it's a small island, there's a lot that can be seen there. It has so much history, so much culture, super great food, amazing people. Um, it's just wonderful. My my families, like I said, they're both deep roots to the island. Their families have been there as long as we can remember. My dad's side of the family, they are from the more central part of the island. So the more um, rural areas. So he grew up with a different lifestyle. My mom grew up in the metropolitan area, though. And her uh, grandfather was actually the owner of Mueblerias Mendoza, which they are they were like the Ashley Furniture of Puerto Rico. Their last name is actually well known. I didn't know that until I grew up. And people would ask me about my double last name if I was that Mendoza. And I was like, I guess. So it's very interesting that everyone in Puerto Rico is kind of tied to each other in one way or another. Let's start with the history of one of Puerto Rico's most beautiful locations, El Junque Rainforest. It's the largest rainforest on the island. It encompasses a good chunk of like the central southern portion of the island. A very beautiful place. It feels like you are in another world. It definitely just is a different level than the rest of the island. Officially known as the Caribbean National Rainforest, the 28,000-acre woodland was originally named by the indigenous Tainos after the benevolent spirit of their god, Yukio meaning, in their language, forest of clouds. During the time Spain was ruling the island, the colonizers confused the name with El Junque. In 1905, after the Spaniards had granted Puerto Rico to the United States, the oldest reserve in the Occidental Hemisphere became the only national rainforest in U.S. territory. While this lush area is wrapped in beauty, it is also wrapped in mystery, with many people throughout the decades finding their way into the forest, but never finding their way out. Yami would learn of this from her father, who had a unique perspective and connection to Aljuke. I found out years later that my dad was actually, when he was younger, he was interested in El Junque Rainforest as a place that he had gone a few times when he was younger to swim in the waterfalls and the little lakes that they have there. He actually took a course there to become a certified guide through El Junque Rainforest. And it was just interesting, the fact that like, he showed us his plaque. He's very proud of it. He never actually gave any tours, but he knows he took the whole 
several day course where they were trained about the history of the rainforest, where they were taught uh, some of the routes and the paths, and where he heard all the stories about the rainforest itself. So he was the one that introduced me to this idea that there's just something different about this place besides it being a beautiful ecological environment itself. Um, he spoke to me about how the the guy that was teaching them, their tour guide, who had been a guide on in the rainforest area for years, he shared with them how important it was for them to really learn the roots and the locations because they had had so many disappearances. And these aren't just like disappearances where like somebody will go missing a day or two. These are disappearances where people are just never, ever found. No trace anything at all about them and my dad thought that was just really strange especially when he began to hear more about the rainforest and how there seemed to be strange phenomenon tied to those disappearances then and these are disappearances that stem from recent history all the way back to the natives that actually lived there on the island so this is a deep history that this place has for being just strange there have been many who have gotten lost in the dense forests of El Junque, but fortunately found their way out. A prime example was in 1997 when Darby Williams, a dean at an Ohio university, traveled to Puerto Rico for a research and fundraising trip. He decided to head to El Junque by himself to hike. Everything was fine until he decided to leave. On his way out, he met and followed a few other hikers who told them that they knew a shortcut. It started raining profusely, and Williams couldn't keep up with the other hikers, and eventually lost his way. More than 60 police, civil defense officials, and park rangers had searched for Williams, who eventually was spotted by a passerby along Highway 191, which enters the forest. Stranded, for almost 12 days, William survived by eating ferns and snails. He was severely dehydrated and lost almost 15 pounds. After being found and treated at a local hospital, the first thing Williams did was call his wife, tears in his eyes, saying nothing but, quote, It's so good to hear your voice. While this story had a happy ending, there were stories that didn't. As Yami points out, some people that go in never come out. One of the most interesting cases that I found was in 1967. It was uh, the story of Ramon Quiñones. He was a part of a group of biology students with professors that were going to camp overnight in El Junque Rainforest. At, back then, this was allowed. You can't do that anymore. Um, but they settled in like a base camp and that's when some strange phenomenon began to happen and they described like the different stories that i gathered from the people that were there was that they described hearing like a weird noise and then began to hear footsteps and noticed a strange figure walking toward them so one of the professors in ramon went out to investigate what it was but only the professor came back and ramon was never found this creature mentioned in the unfortunate story was interesting, especially as Yami elaborated on its features and the mysterious way the authorities decided to deal with this tragic event. 
the only thing that was ever found about Ramon was his guitar that he had leaned against one of the trees. It was very interesting, though, because they described this figure as like this six foot tall, thin bodied, large head creature that seemed to have like like a almost like a luminous tone to it with large eyes, but the features were almost blurred. And it it really like shook up the students that were there. And when they began to search for Ramon, it, it, it caused a big frenzy and there was never any trace of him. When the authorities began to search for him, the forest rangers, they didn't find anything. There were reports afterwards that those that were there um, were pressured by the authorities to not speak about what they had witnessed. And it just became a cold case that to this day, I mean, it's anybody's guess what happened to this young man. Nobody really knows. But it was just interesting stories like that, that there seemed to be a, a strange element to it, either before the disappearance or right after, that really piqued my interest that something may be going on here. Something was most definitely going on in the forest. And there have been many other accounts of strange creatures sighted in El Junque. But what happens when these creatures leave the comfort of dense forests and begin to intrude on the farms and homes of residents across the island? Pero cosas sorprendentes sobre este fenómeno, sobre este ser responsable de la muerte de cientos de animales de una manera muy extraña. ¿Quién es o qué es el chupacabras? Pues hoy por primera vez ustedes tendrán algunas respuestas concretas. Les advertimos que algunas imágenes son fuertes y aquí el reportaje de Pedro Rosanales desde Puerto Rico. We can't talk about Puerto Rico without mentioning the chupacabra. In Spanish, chupacabra means goat sucker. And this strange creature has been widely cited throughout Latin America and even through several states in the U.S. However, its first sighting that kicked off a sensation by Madeleine Tolentino in 1995 took place in Puerto Rico. Eh, los ojos los traía alargados hacia los lados, eran completamente oscuros, lo blanco del ojo pues no lo tenía. Farm animals, goats, chickens, dogs, were found completely drained of blood. The majority of the Puerto Rican reports described an alien-like creature, furless, bug-eyed, and with a ridge of spines down its back. By the fall of 1995, Cases of dead animals and frequent sightings of the chupacabra intensified in a concentrated area in the village of Canovanas. Paranoia had set in, and it had gotten so out of control that even the mayor of Canovanas, Jose Soto, looked heavily into the strange phenomenon. I began to take an interest in this matter when I visited a farm where five sheep had been killed. I saw two wounds in the neck and on some a third mark. It attacks various animals, but mostly sheep and rabbits because they cannot defend themselves easily. Over the following months, Soto began to visit the sites where animals had been killed. He personally interviewed witnesses and organized search parties to try to trap this elusive creature to no avail. 
Son como ciento y pico de animales muertos. There have been more than 100 animals killed. We're talking about 70 or 80 attacks. At the moment, we have some hysteria, some real problems, and some fear. I'm determined to resolve this matter. The 2000s saw an evolution in the chupacabra's appearance, as the phenomenon and reported sightings traveled off-island and across Latin America and the USA. Whereas before, the vampire-like creature was unlike any known animal, now the chupacabra sightings described a hairless, ferocious, dog-like being. When alleged bodies of chupacabras began turning up in Texas, the DNA tests revealed prosaic answers. It's a woman in Texas says she's found the legendary chupacabra oh. and has the evidence to prove it. Oh. Jackie Stock says her husband caught the mysterious creature Sunday night. He has a hairless back, large claws and teeth that some say fit the image of the chupacabra. Biologist Brent Ortego is not convinced. He believes the animal is nothing more than a small dog with mange. Legendary or not, a little guy will be staying with the Stocks until someone can find out what he is. But what about the original chupacabra? Looking rather otherworldly, it had some Puerto Ricans pointing to possible top-secret experiments. Take a wild guess where these experiments were thought to have taken place. There's always been rumors. In El Junque and in some of the surrounding islands, uh, there's always been rumors of like U.S. military experimentation, of research going on there, and what are the effects that have happened subsequently because of that. Some people think that that's a theory for the Chupacabra. Maybe it was a mutated species. Uh, maybe it was a created species that somehow escaped and wreaked havoc for a while. Could the U.S. government have been carrying out top-secret experiments in the rainforest, in a secret facility of some sort? As Yami stated, many on the island believe that in the aftermath of the destructive Hurricane Hugo of 1989, the experimental creature had possibly established its own colony in the wilds of the rainforest. As for the description of the chupacabra, that's where the story might start coming apart. The first chupacabra spotter, Madeleine Tolentino, her description of the chupacabra bears a striking resemblance to that of the alien from the movie Species. When author Benjamin Radford asked Tolentino if she'd seen the movie, she responded that she'd watched Species a week prior to her chupacabra sighting. So, whether the entire sighting was a fabrication, or her look at the creature was clouded by her presuppositions of how an alien-like being is supposed to look, it really is anyone's guess. We'll just have to wait for the next wave of Chupacabra sightings to take place somewhere on the island. To make the Chupacabra creature even more extraordinary and fantastic, many in Puerto Rico believe that it may, in fact, be extraterrestrial in origin. With good reason, Puerto Rico is a hotbed of UFO activity. I don't think a lot of people realize that Puerto Rico is a hub for a lot of UFO activity. There's patterns, reports of strange lights, objects in the skies, even objects in the waters around uh, Puerto Rico have dated back forever. At Fordham University in New York, Archivists have made available the rare handwritten ship's log of Christopher Columbus, written in his very own handwriting. 
and in an entry dated on the 11th of October, 1492. At approximately 10 p.m., Columbus and his crew were sailing across one of the deepest ravines in the Atlantic, almost four miles deep, and through what is today known as the Bermuda Triangle. Pedro Guertes was a crew member on the Santa Maria, sailing with Columbus. He noticed a strange light shining out in the distance over the sea. What was so odd about this sighting, however, is that the light was observed coming up from the water. These lights were seen doing this four consecutive times, and was seen in a variety of positions, which rules out many logical explanations such as a comet, a meteor, or a bright planet or star. The initial sighting was allegedly followed by a great flash of light, with a level of brilliance unlike anything these men had previously known. The light is described as suddenly erupting in the sky, startling Columbus and his crew. Columbus described the light as having the appearance of a flickering wax candle going up and down in the night. This event occurred only five hours before Columbus and his men would discover the new world, and the light seemed to almost guide them finally to land. More specifically, the mountains of El Junque. So could the mysterious forest hold secrets of UFOs, strange creatures, and possibly otherworldly visitors? Many incidents involving UFO activity and possible extraterrestrials have been researched, investigated, and stories told for many decades on the island. And one of the individuals who has taken up the role of the island's go-to ufologist is Jorge Martin. Martin was born in New York City, having parents who were both originally from Puerto Rico. His family returned to Puerto Rico when he was five years old, and he has lived on the island ever since. He began his work of investigative journalism with specializing in anomalous activity and UFOs, having investigated hundreds of cases and incidents both in Puerto Rico and around the world. His work has been published in over 20 countries, and most of it has been archived in a magazine he founded called Evidencia OVNI. In an interview with investigative reporter Peter Heppa, Martin relayed a very intriguing fighter jet pursuit of an alleged triangular UFO witnessed by hundreds of people on the ground. This happened in December 28, 1988 at 7.45 p.m. Uh, the people of the area of uh, Cabo Rojo and Lajas, two towns to the southwest of the island, uh, that night saw a very huge ball of blue light you know, uh, that was flying over the Sierra Bermeja Mountains, a small ridge there where many of these incidents have been happening in Puerto Rico. And then this ball of light changed and it changed to another color, to a huge ball of yellowish light, and the witnesses all could see that this was part of a triangular craft, very big in size, uh, and this yellow light was on the, underneath the object. It was a, almost semicircular, something like a bulge or a ball of yellow light, very bright, and the two jet fires were trying to intercept it, and in three different occasions made it veer away and change its, its direction. In this occasion, the object stopped in midair. One of the jet fighters seemed to, as if it was going to collide with the object by the back of it, 
and the people began screaming because they believed there was going to be a collision and an explosion and something uh, terrible might happen. But what happened was that the jet fighter just disappeared, vanished in midair next to the to the to the UFO. The other jet fighter kept flying next to it by the right side of it, and then all of a sudden it also disappeared. It vanished. The UFO then came back again, turned around, flew over an area known there as the Saman Lake. It's a small pond surrounded by many palm trees. And over these palm trees, I would say at about a, an altitude of 100 feet from the palm trees, it divided itself, this huge triangular object, into two different objects. It split. Luminous explosion, a soundless explosion, a very bright light. And both parts of the craft, one flew very fast to the, to the north and one flew very fast to the east and disappeared. There were other witnesses that say that there was a surgeon fighter that was checking on the situation from a distance. But when that pilot of that surgeon fighter saw what happened, apparently he tried to flee the area and three small balls of red light came out from the, from the UFO and began chasing it and they disappeared to the north. They don't know what happened to the, this surgeon fighter. This incident did occur. It's a very important one. Uh, when you have more than 100 witnesses that describe the same scene to you, they make the same drawings to you, what they saw. Uh, all the details fit with all the descriptions. And we have all the information in the, uh, due to the investigation we made. This jet craft must have been from the Navy of the United States because that day the Puerto Rico Air National Guard had no uh, airplanes or any air practices in the area. And Roosevelt Road Naval Station in Ceiba, a principal base in the Caribbean from the U.S., did have some air practices that night and personnel in the area. The FAA, Federal Aviation Administration in San Juan, confirmed to us that there were practices from Roosevelt Road Naval Station there. In an interview with New Insights TV, Martin described how prevalent UFOs were on the island. And here, he recalls the story of a terrifying helicopter pursuit of a UFO. Late at night, a police officer coming out from the city of Ponce saw this brilliant point of light next to Caja de Muerto Island, south of Ponce, out at sea. And believing that maybe it was something that had to do with a, a drugs trafficking, he sent some people out from Fura, from Ponce, in one helicopter to check this out. As they approached the site, they found out it was a huge flying saucer hovering midair, and the flying saucer disappeared very fast to the south. It made a single jump and appeared at another point, and then the same way came back and stayed in front of the helicopter, which froze in the air. Even though uh, the engines kept working, they just couldn't move from that spot. They were almost hysterical at that moment, the captain and the other personnel and the gunman uh, in this helicopter. Uh, it, this lasted for about two or three minutes. Then the UFO departed very fast and disappeared. And they were able to come back to the airport in Mercedita, in Ponce. Uh, and they were debriefed. They made a, an official report in which they reported this UFO, everything that happened, etc. But for telling the truth, they had to suffer a lot of uh, harassment. Uh, they were sent to psychiatric uh, tests, etc., and treatment and they were not allowed to fly for about six more months. So much for telling the truth. The UFO reports that Martin has compiled are plentiful and, to be frank, quite sensational. One of those events occurred on the night of July 15, 1987. 
Four members of the Puerto Rico National Guard, off military duty, went together with three young kids to an area next to El Junque Mountain to fish for freshwater shrimps in one of the rivers. Little did they know, their shrimping excursion was about to become much more interesting. At about 9 p.m., one of the men had separated from the group and was looking around next to the river when all of a sudden he noticed a small three to four foot tall figure walking in the brush. Believing it could be a child, he approached, worried as to why this child was out here alone at night. The child seemed to be walking strangely with a wavy motion. The man continued to follow the child, very intrigued. Soon, the man's friends and the children entered the brush to follow him. When they all cleared the brush, the first man signaled for them to be quiet and pointed forward at the child. They all were astonished as they came face to face with not a child, but a small being, gray in color, a big head, black eyes, slender body, and long arms and hands. Suddenly, they noticed a glow behind them, over the brush and in the sky, they saw what could simply be described as a saucer-shaped craft, descending from El Junque Mountain. The craft landed in front of them, right behind the strange being. It had three powerful and blinding lights in front of it, which prevented the men and the children from observing the craft's details clearly. Then, a hatch opened on the craft and two other beings identical to the first walked down a small ramp and stood in a straight line, face to face with the witnesses. The two beings on the sides put their hands on the shoulder of the being in the center. The men and children whispered to one another that they seemed to be picking up the center being and that the humans should not get involved. Soon, all three of the beings turned their backs on the group and ran inside the craft. The hatch door closed behind them, and the craft made a deafening buzzing sound. It then rose in the air and flew away with very fast speeds to the top of El Junque Mountain, where it disappeared. The group of witnesses stood there, perplexed, scared, and due to their positions in the National Guard, they made a pledge between them never to talk about what just happened to anyone. According to Martin, one of the men told him that this event had affected him greatly, that sometimes at work he would think about what happened and it would replay over and over in his mind. He'd get very upset when this happened, and it made him continuously question everything he thought he knew, and also made him question what was going on in El Junque Rainforest. Finally, when it comes to UFOs, Puerto Rico has a Roswell-like story of its own, which covers what could possibly have been the crash of a craft of unknown origin. It was first reported by local farmer Francisco Negron, a small distance from the village of Lajas. Around 3.30 a.m., reports began to pour in over the newswires, all accounts coincided on the fact that something had happened near Lajas, producing an intense brush fire in the habitually arid region. But the source of the fire became a bone of contention. One band of UFO researchers 
claimed that a spacecraft had hurtled out of the sky and exploded, causing the conflagration, along with reports of federal agents who denied the local police access into the area. Skeptics of this event believed that all it was was a meteor. To everyone's surprise, an astronomer took the side of the pro-UFO faction, insisting that a meteor of that magnitude would have left a tremendous crater, possibly obliterating Lajas and the neighboring towns. On May 7, 1997, Univision's Spanish-language show Premier Impacto presented a dramatic roundup of the events surrounding the mysterious Lajas incident. The interviewers reported claims that the army had reported to the area to collect debris from the impact site, and that the consternation among the locals was clearly visible. It was also pointed out that unusually heavy UFO activity had been reported over Puerto Rico's southern tier, and that a woman from the city of Ponce had taken a video of a silver, oblong-shaped craft crossing the skies. Even the mayor of Lajas at the time, Marcos Irizarry, believed that the explosion and subsequent fire had been caused by a UFO crash. Irizarry added in the newscasts that a growing number of local residents were coming forward with accounts of a glowing object that fell from the sky and that three distinct explosions had been heard. Coincidentally, an area radio station also experienced technical difficulties shortly after the explosions had occurred, suggesting the possibility of EMP, or electromagnetic pulse radiation. Even the U.S. Coast Guard had their own opinion on the event, suggesting that it was not a meteor at all. Their explanation? An airplane crash. At least they didn't use the weather balloon explanation. Whatever crash in Lajas will go down just like the Roswell crash as a mystery we may never know the answer to. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Bye. 
While the next story may not involve strange creatures or UFO crashes, it does involve a flying saucer, in its own endearing yet interesting way. On the southern coast of the island sits a house, but not just any house, and that's because with its blinking, strobing, technicolor lights, this metal saucer-shaped home of retired industrial arts teacher Roberto Sanchez Rivera is meant to look just like a grounded UFO. Resting on the slopes of Juana Diaz, the otherworldly house exists only to prove a girl wrong after 40 years. And all because Rivera suffered the same fate of many UFO enthusiasts and geeks across the planet. He was dumped. As a love-struck teenager, Rivera was an artistic student from a poor family, and he would send his girlfriend love notes with little UFOs drawn around the sides. With all the love and hope in his heart, Rivera promised he would one day build a home for the two of them that resembled the flashing flying saucers of the B-movies that they used to watch in the local movie theaters together. However, one day, after three months of seeing each other, she unceremoniously ended the relationship with a letter telling him that her own mother didn't think he would ever amount to anything and that she should break up with him. When he received the cold, dispassionate letter, he admitted that he almost killed himself, diving into a deep depression. But he regrouped, recovered, and told himself that he would show her. He would work that much harder to show her who he was. Completing his studies at Pontifical Catholic University in Ponce, Rivera studied design and fine arts and resolved to build his UFO house and make it with his own two hands. Purchasing the land in 2002 for $95,000, Rivera spent the next 10 years and some $150,000 total constructing his unusual futuristic home, even wiring it up to emit the famous signature theme from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He not only can put the song of Close Encounters, I mean, he can put anything. He sometimes puts cookies or salsa. The spot he picked is visible for miles around by drivers on the passing highway, and Rivera intentionally chose the hillside so that the unnamed girl who broke his heart would see the UFO home and know that he had amounted to something. Scrimping and saving over those ten years it took him to build the house, Rivera fitted out his home not with expensive high-tech appliances, but with dollar store ashtrays made to resemble antenna and used $1.99 salad bowls for his flashing light fixtures. He built the cupboards by hand and even fashioned the toilet seat in his flying saucer home to match the alien surroundings that he wanted to create. 
Most of the furniture in the home is raised off the ground. Rivera said that this reminded him of living in the barrio and having to lift furniture to keep the home clean and tidy. Soon word began to spread all over the island about the flying saucer home. And as the fame of his alien house on the hillside grew in the surrounding areas, Rivera received an unusual visit in the dead of night. No, it wasn't an alien. It was the girl that had broken his heart. She was so impressed, she told Rivera that she wanted to get back together with him. But he was not having any of it, and he turned her down. Because you see, Rivera had moved on. He found a girlfriend who appreciated him and his dreams, and he now lives with her in the Flying Saucer home. Satisfied that he had completed what he promised himself he would, Rivera, who claims he has no interest in science fiction, had some advice for anyone who finds themselves in the same predicament. In an interview with the New York Times, and translated by his new girlfriend to the American reporters, he said, quote, You should never say to any human being, you can never accomplish anything in life. Rivera and his flying saucer home were proof of that. As all the rooms in the house are different, it creates, and it gives him a sensation of, de, de movimiento, of movement. De movimiento del tiempo, porque movement todo es all the time, because everything is different. Para no caer la so he doesn't fall into the monotony. Porque muchos decoran siempre más o menos lo mismo. Decor, same, en colores, diseños, no, aquí todo es diferente. Mi personalidad. But this is his personality. Not only an extraordinary house, but extraordinary pipes on Rivera. Man. The Carretera Central is a historic north to south central highway in Puerto Rico, linking the cities of San Juan and Ponce. Off of this highway, near the town of Coyamo, is the Puente de las Calabazas, a bridge which was constructed in 1882. The bridge is rather unassuming in the daytime, stretching a mere 70 feet across as the Coyon River flows below it. About 4,000 vehicles drive across it daily, but at night many do what they can to avoid the bridge. But why? La Llorona, of course. Cristina Hernandez is a co-host of the Espooky Tales podcast, a show dedicated to Latinx stories, folklore, and legends. La Llorona is very popular in Mexican culture, and even went mainstream in several major horror movies. Cristina tells us a bit more about the legend of La Llorona. 
One tale that can be heard in pretty much every single Spanish-speaking country or place is the tale of La Llorona, or the Weeping Woman. The way this is most commonly heard is that she was a mestiza, a woman of indigenous and Spanish descent, and she was poor. She married a rich man, and they had two kids. One day he leaves her and the two kids, and later she sees him with a younger woman. In a jealous rage, she drowns her two kids in a river and then kills herself. When she arrives in heaven, she cannot get past the gates until she finds the blood of her children that she murdered. So now she roams near rivers, creeks, ravines, basically any body of water, and she looks for children to take. This is a tale told to children to frighten them into behaving. Uh, you'll hear things like, you better be home before dark, or La Llorona's gonna take you, or listen to your parents, or La Llorona will come for you. So while the legend is very popular in many South American countries, it also carved its own version out in Puerto Rico, where the Puente de las Calabazas, to be exact. This bridge is on the U.S. National Register of Historic Places. Many car accidents have occurred on this bridge, which probably fuels all the stories associated with it. They say that drivers going through the bridge pass by a woman asking for a ride. If they ignore her, the driver will get a flat tire in a few kilometers, or she'll suddenly appear in the back seat of the car and then causes an accident from like the fright of seeing someone randomly appear in your vehicle. If the driver does decide to give her a ride, the minute she gets inside the vehicle, she turns from a beautiful woman into a horrible creature that begins to cry. The sounds of her cry are so wretched and loud that it causes the driver to get in an accident as soon as they exit the bridge. While La Llorona is claimed to have been encountered on and around this bridge, she's not the only one using Puente de las Calabazas as a haunting spot. They say that at midnight on this bridge, you will suddenly see the floating apparition of a young woman that they call La Novia Difunto del Caño, or the deceased bride of the caño. Legend tells that a few days before her wedding, her and her fiancé went to a different town to dance. On the way back, there was a terrible accident and they both lost their lives. Now, at the same time that the accident occurred, you can see her appear on the road in her wedding dress, asking for a ride. Sometimes only her torso can be seen, and sometimes to her full body. Shortly after seeing her, cars mysteriously malfunction. They'll just stop working. But as soon as you turn over the car, it'll go, and you know, you can get out of there. The rule of three is a writing principle that suggests that a trio of events or characters is more effective, and it would seem that Puente de las Calabazas is following this rule as it continues to write its own ghost stories. Legend tells that a century ago, a drunk man on horseback was crossing the bridge when he heard the cries of a baby. He found the baby and assumed that it was crying due to hunger. He had bread in his pocket, and when he tried to feed the baby, he noticed that the baby had giant, sharp canine teeth. The baby then let out this horrible, evil laugh, and the man hopped back on his horse immediately and rode away as fast as he could. And they say that apparently he quit drinking after this occurred. Legends and folklore are one thing, but personal accounts are another. What happens when you come face to face with these spirits 
of Puerto Rico. As a young child, Suzanne Slaughter had her fair share of paranormal encounters. At the age of 15, she joined a paranormal investigation group and has been interested in the unexplained ever since. When the hit television series Ghost Hunters decided to branch off and create a show focusing on amateur ghost hunters, Slaughter was selected and won the competition show. She then went on to be one of the lead investigators on another property called Ghost Hunters International. Once the cameras are off, many of the individuals on these TV shows don't continue their investigative work in the paranormal. But this most certainly was not the case for Slaughter. She continues to investigate up until today. And one of the most impactful investigations she ever conducted occurred on the island of Puerto Rico. So the first location in Puerto Rico that I investigated with my team was Castillo San Felipe de Morro, which is known as El Morro Fortress. It was initially built in 1539. It took about 50 years to build the whole fortress um, all the way through 1589. And essentially, it was used by the Spanish conquistadors to defend the colonial port city of San Juan. And, you know, the types of people that were coming through um, the ports, you know, are essentially what movies like the Pirates of the Caribbean were about, you know. Um, Puerto Rico is this gorgeous little island with lots and lots of resources, and they had to defend that island from not only the British, but the Dutch, and, you know, just general pirates that wanted to steal goods from the rich Spanish conquistadors. Um, anyways, a lot of the paranormal claims in this fortress um, are very visual. Uh, people that work there or even, you know, some tourists have claimed they've seen full-bodied apparitions of soldiers dressed in full Spanish, you know, 16th century military attire with the metal helmets and everything. Um, people had thought that they were, you know, actors, you know, there for entertainment for the tourists. But it wasn't until one woman saw one of these apparitions walk through literally a brick wall that she realized that she wasn't looking at some, you know, actor or something that what she saw was actually a ghost. And there's a lot of stories like this coming from El Morro Fortress. El Moro Fortress is also notorious for sightings of a spectral woman dressed all in white. She is said to be terrifyingly slithering along the ramparts of the fortress. Even more terrifying, late at night, the ghost ships of every nation that ever attacked Puerto Rico line up in the dark to reattempt the horrors of their past deeds. But for slaughter, it would be the hallways of the fortress that caught her attention most. But it wasn't something she saw or heard. So when I went there with my team, one of the places I investigated were these long hallways. Um, they were kind of in the lower levels of the fortress, and I was there with my um, fellow investigator, Paul Bradford. Now, I didn't really see anything notable at the time, nor did I, you know, hear anything unusual. Yes, you hear little things like bumps and, 
you know, maybe some footsteps, but nothing that I can solidly say, okay, this place is haunted. That being said, it was also one of the locations that made me feel the absolute most uneasy. Um, Something about that location really um, made me physically ill whenever I was in those hallways. I was feeling as if, you know, I was about to faint, that I was like at points going up and down on a roller coaster. It was actually very nauseating. And I kept getting these psychic impressions, which I choose not to use on investigations because I like to be, you know, more fact driven and I like to have real basis for evidence and things like that. Um, So I usually keep my sensations to myself, but I was feeling very, very attacked and uneasy inside the fortress. The halls of the fortress wasn't the only place that Slaughter had a strange experience. The Teatro Tapia, built in 1818, is the oldest freestanding, continuously running drama stage located in a plaza in downtown San Juan. With a history that long, and thousands of artists having stepped on that stage, it's no wonder that this opera house would be considered one of the most haunted places on the island. Before it was an opera house and a theater for the arts, in that very plaza, um, there used to be public executions and hangings um, dating back to the 16th century. When we went there with the team, of course, a lot of the people were talking about seeing shadow people, pretty much pacing back and forth on in the seats and you know it's it's an opera house so just imagine you know what a theater looks like there's mezzanines there's upper levels lower levels sloped seating that leads to you know the orchestra pit and then the stage and it's beautiful gorgeous you know, 200-year-old theater. During that investigation, a lot of my team members had more of the interactions where they were seeing shadows in the mezzanines. They were, you know, even being touched, arms being pulled, equipment being pushed out of people's hands. It was really interesting. And one of the cool things that we did is we set up three cameras in, you know, this underground basement area which I guess was used as some sort of dressing room at the time. And within this space, there was one FLIR camera, which is a thermal imaging camera. Next to it, we had a regular IR camera, a security camera, infrared camera, if you will. And then next to it, we had a full spectrum camera, which can see into different variants of light, like on the like a infrared and ultraviolet spectrums. So in this room, the regular IR camera also has the ability to sense motion. So it'll start to map out with little squares if there is any movement in front of the camera. So if someone goes by, a little square would wrap around the human in frame until it walks off camera. So in this instance, the FLIR camera picked up an intense heat signature for a split second just as the IR camera started noticing and picking up and mapping out movement. But the movement 
was being mapped out by the camera, but you can clearly see nothing walk in front of the camera. So something about whatever was in that that particular room in the opera house set off a really, really high heat signature that was being visually represented by the IR camera, which we could clearly see nothing on. I thought that was really cool because we were able to have two cameras react to a phenomena and yet still not see it, except for its heat signature, which I thought was really interesting. But while the evidence of a possible energy or spirit may have been captured on camera, this wasn't the event that would stick with Slaughter the most. It wasn't the fortress or the theater or even a place known to be haunted. It was in her hotel room with something a little too close for comfort. So aside from these really uncomfortable sensations while investigating the fortress, it wasn't until I went to my hotel and called it a night that I had my experience. I was staying in a very modern hotel. It was kind of bougie, a little fancy. I was probably on, you know, one of the top floors, you know, probably the 17th or 18th level. And I had a hard time going to sleep that night. When I finally did doze off, it was kind of turning light outside. You know, my room was a little bit in that bluish hue. And as I started dozing off, I felt the end of my bed kind of sink as if someone was sitting on the edge of it. And as I turned to look over in that direction, I didn't see anything sitting on the edge of my bed, although because I felt that I was anticipating it, what I saw was actually much closer to me, standing right next to me, what looked like a woman wearing rags and drenched in water, long black hair, I remembered the detail of actually seeing like water dripping down like her neck and her arms, but I really couldn't make out her face. It was so distorted and not really realized in the apparition. When I saw that, I saw that for maybe a split second with all of that detail. And it, I just the fear that it, it stilled in me was absolutely, it was not like anything I ever felt because normally I don't necessarily react to phenomena with fear, but sometimes certain types of phenomena, that's part of the experience where this energy or entity tried to give me this sensation of fear. Of course, I didn't go to sleep like that night and it was a miserable next day. I had told my teammates about what I had saw and we kind of left it at that. I had to focus on my next case. You go anywhere on the planet, and every country, state, city, or town has their own legends or lost spirits or ghosts that linger. They are stories passed down through the voices of those telling them, a way of preserving the history of an area, and in turn, keeping its stories and, in a way, its spirits alive. But what happens when that spirit just doesn't seem to want to leave you? What happens when it follows you all across the country to your home? So moving on from that experience, um, 
you know, even moving on from that experience later in life, I moved to Los Angeles. I moved to a two-story townhouse with my cousin and one of her friends and went on with my life over a year and a half later. And I had a moment in that was really interesting and it was... Um, and it really real, I really realized at that point that maybe I had a spiritual attachment. And sometimes as you don't realize you'll, you'll have these attachments because they don't really come to you very often. You know, sometimes it's just like circumstantially, I don't know, or maybe a certain person, I, I don't know. So one of my roommates, you know, knowing I'm a paranormal investigator, just runs down to me and, you know, wakes me up in the middle of the night and says, Susan, I need to sleep with you. I just saw something in my room and I cannot be in there by myself. So I ask her, of course, please explain to me what you just experienced. And I kid you not, she was like, Susan, I saw a woman with long, dark hair. She looked like she was covered in water soaking wet, wearing rags, and she was just standing, staring at the corner of her room, like facing the wall. And she was so terrified by that. But when she explained to me what she had saw, I knew instantly that that was the same spirit that I saw in Puerto Rico in my hotel room. And I believe very strongly that that was an attachment I brought with me from El Moro Fortress because the sensations that I felt in those tunnels were just absolutely of despair. And, you know, it came to me, I'm pretty empathetic. And although I couldn't understand at the time what I was feeling, there was an energy trying to connect with me and maybe I just wasn't privy to it at the time. And so it attached itself to me, showed itself to me in Puerto Rico. And I, you know, moved on without properly, you know, confronting this energy. I was working on a case right after that and just kind of moved on with my life. And although I did think back to it every so often, I never really, you know, touched base with that energy again. And it wasn't until a year or so later when my roommate told me she saw that energy in her room. And I just kind of told her, you know, about my experience in Puerto Rico. So that was the one interesting Thing that happened to me in Puerto Rico where I brought home an energy from El Moro Fortress. Whether it's women drenched in water, shadow people, or ghost ships, it's quite clear that the dead continue to speak on the island, whether we're listening or not. But a death of another kind would hit Puerto Rico in December of 2020, closing a chapter in astronomical history. The 305-meter radio telescope at the Arecibo Observatory survived decades of hurricanes, including the devastating Hurricane Maria in 2017. And it's also survived earthquakes, the unusually strong one in early January of 2020, to be more specific. But besides natural disasters, it's also survived attempts by its owner, the U.S. National Science Foundation, to reduce its funding. The Arecibo Radio Telescope contributed to many significant discoveries, 
including observations of pulsars that captured a Nobel Prize and the first confirmed exoplanets as well. Closer to home, the observatory's radar equipment emitted radio signals to identify the shape, spin, and speed of potentially hazardous asteroids for NASA. The telescope also monitored dwarf stars, planets in our solar system, and disturbances in Earth's atmosphere. The last time that Arecibo was used for a targeted search for signs of extraterrestrial technology, called Technosignatures, was from 1998 to 2004, as part of the privately funded Project Phoenix, run by the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California. The project observed 800 nearby stars, but picked up no transmissions. In 2019, NASA restored funding for exoplanet and exobiology research to continue looking for technosignatures. And like mentioned before, while the island of Puerto Rico has suffered many hardships and natural disasters as of late, another tragedy occurred on December 21st, 2020. A huge telescope at the iconic Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico has collapsed. This comes after officials announced the radio telescope was set to close after it was damaged last month. Officials made the announcement after key cables broke. They said even if they could repair it, the structure would would be unstable long-term. This radio telescope was the second largest in the world. It withstood hurricanes and earthquakes while playing a key role in many astronomical discoveries. The telescope's massive science platform, which weighed in at around 900 tons, was suspended above the vast radio dish by three dozen supporting cables. But in August 2020, one of those cables slipped out of its socket. Before the failure could be repaired, a second cable snapped. The U.S. National Science Foundation, which owns the site, determined that the platform was too unstable to safely repair and decided to decommission the instrument. Before that could happen, the telescope collapsed. And while other telescopes with similar purposes have been created in the past few years, nothing compares to Arecibo. Most radio telescopes, such as the world's current largest, the 500-meter Aperture Spherical Telescope, in China were designed only to receive signals. But Arecibo's 305-meter dish was capable of both receiving and transmitting. Our best tool for listening and talking to the universe is now silent. But for so many, Arecibo will live on as one of the most extraordinary contributions to the astronomical fields and the search for extraterrestrial signals. And while it's always thought-provoking and fun to think of civilizations from other planets or star systems, what about those civilizations back here on Earth that were possibly lost to history? When Christopher Columbus landed in what is now Puerto Rico, he was surprised to find that the island he named San Juan Batista was already inhabited by the Taino. It's estimated that as many as 50,000 Taino lived on Puerto Rico at the time of Columbus's arrival. They seemed to have led an idyllic existence, hunting and fishing from dugout canoes, and they also grew crops. Until the arrival of the conquistadors, 
The only threat to the Taino were from the Caribs, a warlike people who would sail to the island raiding and pillaging. In fact, the word Taino is a native word that means good, as opposed to their bad Carib enemies. Although the Taino were weakened by the attacks of the Caribs, it was the arrival of the Spanish colonists that led to their ultimate downfall and almost rapid extinction. European diseases for which the Taino had no resistance quickly swept through the population, and those who survived suffered miserable lives as slaves on sugarcane and other agricultural plantations. By about 1515, a mere seven years after Spanish colonists, led by Governor Ponce de Leon, settled on Puerto Rico. The native Taino population had been reduced to 4,000, and by the middle of the 16th century, only a few dozen remained. But is it possible that there was another group of people inhabiting the island even before the Taino, or even amongst them? Recent compelling evidence came in the form of ancient stone figures of the Nansario collection. Artifacts that are largely anthropomorphic or humanoid and carved from a Puerto Rican serpentine stone. Remnants of gold flecking on the artifacts suggest to archaeologists that these statuettes may have been used for some type of ritual. The story of the discovery of the statuettes may yield some clues as to the figure's origins. A Catholic priest, Jose M. Nazario, attended the deathbed of an indigenous Taino woman. On her deathbed, she told him of her family's generations-old treasure, ancient stone figures they had stowed away for safekeeping in a tunnel. Nazario followed her instructions to a riverside location where he dug up some seven to eight hundred stones of various shapes, sizes, and all bearing unknown petroglyphs. After Nazario's death in 1919, around 250 of the figures were put into the Institute of Puerto Rican Culture. Stone statuettes have been confirmed by the University of Haifa's Zinman Institute of Archaeology as around 600 years old, having been carved in antiquity. Most intriguing of all, there is a script etched into these figures that bears no resemblance to any other known script from the Americas. Professor Ranil Rodriguez Ramos, who has examined the artifacts, was quoted as saying, we are in the presence of an annotation system that has never been documented so far. As of 2019, the University of Haifa and other researchers are investigating the mysterious writing system for clues. With a Mayan or Incan origin out of the question, we might just be on the cusp of uncovering an unknown civilization in Puerto Rico. Whether it's through UFO and alien encounters, strange creatures, ghosts, or lost civilizations, Puerto Rico is most definitely a special place for many reasons. Its extremely diverse culture lives on with immense pride. The island has embraced all of these different phenomena 
which all seemed to have a affinity for the island, and in particular the tiny village of Lajas and the surrounding areas. In 2005, the local government approved construction of a UFO landing strip on Indian Hill, close to where the alleged UFO crash had occurred. Lifelong experiencer and school teacher Rinaldo Rios has spearheaded this project, convinced by both his own experiences and local knowledge of UFO phenomena that this location is a significant contact point for extraterrestrials. In an interview with Ruptly.tv, Rio stated the following. I work independently and did a report 13 or 14 years ago, and the Puerto Rican government and politicians wouldn't allow me to make the report public about the extraterrestrials. There are more and more people who have seen things and are being prevented from saying what they are observing. The government said it would affect the tourism in Puerto Rico. The people are disillusioned with it and want what they have seen made public. Since the extraterrestrial route went up, numerous tourists have already begun making the pilgrimage to Lajas, intrigued by its strange history. So it seems that the government's worry of bad publicity concerning tourism actually had the opposite effect. More and more tourists arrive every year. Whether a wholly different kind of visitor may be dropping in anytime soon remains a possibility. So while some locations throughout the world may have tales of UFO crashes, strange cryptozoological creatures roaming its lakes or forests, or a famous haunted house filled with phantoms, Puerto Rico rests proudly in the Caribbean Sea, with all of these tied to its history, its legends, and its people. Puerto Rico, we are a blending pot of a lot of different cultures. You know, we have the Taino natives. We have from the Spaniards that came originally, from the African slaves, from the Caribbean slaves. So there's a big mesh of different cultures there. And you can see the way that those different cultures influence what Puerto Rico is today, our folklore, our traditions, our music, our food, religious beliefs, even on the island. I'd say the predominant religion on the island is, you know, Catholicism because it was brought with the Spaniards originally. Um, but there's a lot of places on the island that still hold to like um, almost like mixtures of religious beliefs brought over with the African slaves or brought over from the other Caribbean islands. So it's, it's interesting because that also influences the way that people perceive the supernatural in general and are open to it. And I think that's actually might be a reason why the island has so many of these tales that continuously be passed down and it's more apt to be believed by the people because there's, there's already sort of a culture that is open to believing. With a population of a little under 3 million people, Puerto Rico has both a rich and complex history full of ups, downs, and everything in between. It's a place in constant transition, just like the rest of the world around it. It's a place many call home, and a place where stories were born, stories were brought, and stories that have yet to be told. The more stories that you share, the more that people connect with each other. 
And we're in a time again where we're not as connected as we used to be. And the sharing of these stories, it brings intrigue and it brings interest. And I think it's so important that people know about Puerto Rico and all that it has to offer, whether strange or just being a beautiful place to visit because it will bring attention to this little small island that some people don't even know exists here in the Caribbean. The island has suffered a lot. I think it's very important that people know that we are here. I hope that it brings it brings specialists, it brings people that want to investigate, that want to research because they're going to find that people want to share their stories on the island. They want to be heard. And they also have the same questions. So I think it would be wonderful for more of these stories to get out so people would find more interest in our small little islands. And who knows, honestly, what can come of that. It doesn't matter the size of the place. You'd be surprised what sometimes you can find. And I hope that the island continues to gain a little bit of just love for it and all that it has to offer. Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. What's up, guys? Ryan Sprague here. Are you an artist, graphic designer, or just looking for an opportunity to stretch your right brain? Somewhere in the Skies has partnered with our merchandising company, tpublic.com, for the ultimate Somewhere in the Skies fan art contest. Running from April 1st to April 30th, we'll be taking submissions for your design to be featured in the Somewhere in the Skies store. That's right, your art will be on sale in our official Tee Public store and available in all different items from t-shirts, sweatshirts, tank tops, stickers, buttons, mugs, and everything in between. You'll also receive half the commission on every order of your design and receive a gift box of items with your design. Compliments of TeePublic.com. There are literally no limitations on how you choose to design. The only rule is that it must say Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague, somewhere in the design. The top three designs as voted by TeePublic and myself will then be presented for a public vote on May 1st. On the Somewhere in the Skies Twitter account, and the Somewhere in the Skies Facebook group, where you can cast your vote for the winner. Second and third place winners will receive a special gift from me as well. To enter, submit your high-resolution design as an attachment to ryan.spreg51 at gmail.com. Again, submissions must be received no later than 11.59pm EST on April 30th. I'm really looking forward to seeing your artistic abilities and interpretations of what the show means to you. And I can't wait to have your exclusive design in the official Somewhere in the Skies store. For questions or to discuss further, don't be afraid to reach out on Twitter, Facebook, or at ryan.spreg51 at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support. And now, get designing. 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 